Here we go. Listeners, can you imagine it is actually 2023? And for those of you who are new to the show, my name is Michelle Simpson, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Black Talk. Black Talk is a co-creation of the Boulder NAACP and KGNU. We're a monthly segment that features Black voices, Black thought, and Black vision. So, Dean Matthew, I would like to extend you a very warm virtual <laughs> welcome back to colorado and i'm gonna just kind of establish your colorado bona fides if you don't mind for yes please i'm sure i'll leave something please. out i'm sure <laughs> i'm gonna leave something out so jump in yeah. um you were a cu law professor and vice dean do i have that right you have that right okay and you were also a member of the center of bioethics humanities on the anschutz medical center campus that is right thank you and and you held a joint appointment at the uh, Colorado School of Public Health, and you founded the Colorado Health Equity Project. I co-founded the Colorado Health Equity Project. Okay, yeah. you co-founded. Okay. Yes. Anything I've left out in terms of your time in Colorado? 14 years. Oh, my God. There's so much to talk about. But oh, those, I'm sure. Those I'm sure. are the main, main, main data points. Okay. So can I put you on the spot? and ask you what, if anything, you miss about living and working in Colorado? I miss the sunshine. <laughs> and I, I especially miss it today. I'm standing in rainy Washington, D.C. There was also a vibrancy about healthy living in mm -hmm. Colorado. It was the culture. Now, I brought that with me. Right. Um, I miss having it around me. Mm -hmm. I I, I remember I used to walk into my office and think, oh, I'm so excited, patting myself on the back. I ran a 5K and somebody would say, oh, and I ran an ultra marathon. <laughs> Showing off. You were Showing always, off. <laughs> always climbing higher. So yeah. Yeah. Flat irons. Yeah. I, no, yes. absolutely. Yes. And they're all still waiting for you. You know, anytime oh. you're ready to come on back, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm speaking past tense because since 2020, you've been the dean um, and Harold H. Green, professor of law at George Washington University Law School. And it said, it said that the past is prologue. And that appears to, that appears to be true since you're returning to Colorado, Denver specifically, for an event sponsored by Sister to Sister. And dear listeners, you may know that Sister to Sister is an international network of professional African-American women that has been in our community for well over 30 years. And they're hosting an event on the 21st of January at the Zion Senior Center. All of this is gonna be posted on the website. Um, but again, 21 January at the Zion Senior Center in Denver from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. And the event will include a screening of Aftershock, a documentary that focuses a lens on the disproportionate number of Black women who are failed 
who are failed. I can't underscore that enough by the U.S. maternal health system each and every day. So again, the documentary Aftershock will be screened at this event, followed by a discussion in which you, Dean Matthew, are featured speaker. So Dean, Dean Matthew, you've written several books. Um, and the two that I'm most aware of are titled Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare, and Just Health, which is a newer book. Just Health, because I believe that was published this year or it last was. year, yeah. 2022. 2022. Yeah, Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. And your book spotlight racial, ethnic, and social determinants and disparities in America's healthcare system, because you've been at the forefront of that whole conversation when it comes to public health. And so you've been also in the fight for environmental justice, which links in when we talk about health um, and healthcare. And I know you were a member of uh, Senator Stabenow's health policy team. That's Senator Debbie Stabenow's health team. So could you share with our listeners how, even before you were, for example, health policy fellow in residence at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where did this passion, where did this kind of deep interest or calling, if you will, um, to look at research, um, make known the injustices embedded in the U.S. healthcare system? When did that? When did that happen? When did that begin? I have to say there were two inflection points, Michelle. I have to credit my parents first and foremost. My parents, May and Vincent Bowen, in my view, died prematurely due to structural racism. Mm -hmm. And they taught me that growing up in the South Bronx, although they were able to get me out of the South Bronx, hence they worked five jobs between them, no living wage at a single one of them. They made it possible for me not to go to school at a failed school district, the South Bronx. They made it possible for me to breathe cleaner air, drink cleaner water, eat better food, but they did it at the expense of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that contrast between my life starting in the fifth grade in beautiful bucolic Riverdale, New York, where I went to school, and the South Bronx, where I lived my life every day, first crystallized the injustice, inequity, and disparity in lives from one neighborhood to the other. But I also have to say the second inflection point was in Colorado. Really? Really, believe it or not, I began to really understand as a scholar that health disparities were no more than a measurable indicator of how just or unjust a society was. So there I was at the University of Colorado Law School studying civil rights, constitutional law, and thinking about justice deeply from a legal perspective. Okay. And then at the Anschutz Medical Campus, thinking about health disparities from a medical and sociology perspective. And the two came together for me in Colorado. So you, for example, were kind to include in my bio, the co-founding of the Colorado Health Equity Project. Mm -hmm. That was the first of three equity centers that I have founded or co-founded because I began to see 
that as Norman Daniels says, a society is only as healthy as it is just. Mm. So another way of saying that is that health is a byproduct of justice. Right. And so those two really came together for me as I looked at my parents' lives and I looked at my family and my community. And then I looked at the law that made it possible for the lives of African-Americans, Native Americans, Latina Americans in this country to be so vastly different. The law made that possible. Got it. Got it. Out, It shows, it comes out in the wash, as they say, Mm -hmm. in health disparities. So let me ask you this. Um, This past semester, um, I'm a philosophy professor. And this past semester in my class, um, it's titled Ethical Puzzles and Moral Conflicts. So in my my class, we spent a lot of time, Dean Matthew, discussing fairness and justice, a lot. And justice is fairness. And the whole social justice approach to healthcare, um, and, and just to say quickly, you know, to kind of sum it up, many who clamor for, um, encourage, push social justice and a social justice approach to healthcare is one in which everyone would have access to the health services they need when and where they need them without suffering financial hardship. And that's something we talked a lot about, this whole idea that no one would just get sick and die just because they can't afford healthcare or because they cannot access the healthcare services they need. So the titles of both of your books, Just Medicine and Just Health, what would that look like? What is what does justice look like? Yes, I could uh, I, I could sit in your class and understand much more deeply the Rawlsian concept of yes. justice that mm-hmm. I perceive as underlying our legal founding. So we have a country that was founded with a document that starts by saying that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that means unquestionable, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That all, at the time men, but all are created equal. And then in, in our constitution, we embody that notion of equality in the 14th amendment and throughout the document saying, as the Supreme Court right down the street from me has emblazoned over its door, equal justice for all. Equality is an intrinsic principal core value of our nation's founding. So if you marry that with health and ask what would this just equal health system look like? It's really simple. It would look like everyone, every human being would have an equal opportunity to have what they need, when they need, how they need the resources to be healthy. Yeah. That's what it would mean. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you this. So in the spring, I believe it was the spring of 2021, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention declared what most Black folks have known, (laughs) um, that racism is a serious public health threat. And the declaration came at a time when it was impossible for anyone, okay, who was breathing um, to ignore that COVID-19 was having a disproportionate impact on communities of color. And for some who were first thinking about this, um, it kind of laid bare the racial health disparities in the United States. Do you believe, because again, you're working and in some of these circles where these conversations 
are being had and have been had. Do you believe that that acknowledgement, because it happened not just at the CDC, but it happened on the local and regional level where you had public health officials coming out to announce, again, as I said, what we've known, um, that racism is a public health issue. Do you think that's made a difference? Yes, I really do. Um, it hasn't made the difference we need it to make, mm -hmm. but it started to shape the conversation so that we don't see health as just medical care. We okay. don't see health as something that happens at the end of a long life of social context, which has contributed to the need for medical care. So the public health view of health is that upstream from when you actually have to go to a doctor, a clinic, a nurse, a, a, a person, even a doula, right, mm -hmm. uh, to provide you health care. Upstream from that, there are life circumstances that have much more to do with whether you are healthy or not healthy than simply your medical care or even access to medical care. Access to medical care, important, essential, but it accounts for about 10%, we estimate, of what determines whether you are healthy or not. Much more important is the 30-40% of social and environmental context. So where you eat and what you eat, the quality of the air you breathe, the quality of the water you drink, the quality of the housing that you live in, the quality of the education, the quality of the employment that you have access to, the food you have access to, the extent to which your environment is a healthy environment. Does it have recreational spaces? Is it over-policed? Hmm. All of these have an influence far greater that far outweighs whether you do or do not have a medical clinic next door. And as you were saying, anybody who was not living under a rock could see those inequalities, right? Those injustices play out during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. You know, I don't know if you've, you know, had the opportunity, and, and perhaps I should reverse that question, if <clears throat> medical students have had the opportunity to hear from you. So I guess my question is this, if you were speaking to a class of incoming medical students, what would you want them to know? What would you want them to consider? Or what classes would you want them to have an opportunity to sit in on because so much of this really is connected to again how we're training medical professionals health professionals i i can't tell you how often i hear black women specifically talk about not being heard um, not being seen their pain not being taken seriously and right before our conversation i received um a scholarship application. I don't know if you recall the Betcher scholarship, but anyway, big, big deal, big deal. And um, a young woman who I just feel such deep affection for um, asked me to write a letter of recommendation for her. And she is a young black woman who wants to go to med school. That's, that's her goal. And um, I just often think about medical education and the desire to treat, the desire to help. It just seems as if it's, I was gonna say derailed, but I don't know if it was ever on the rails. So um, I would ask you, what would you say? In other words, if you were speaking to 
um, perspective, med students or medical students, and or as I said, maybe an incoming class, or you know, dyed in the wool doctors, folks who are you know treating folks every day, or maybe all of them. What would you want them to hear? What are they in your mind, Dean Matthew, need to to understand? Michelle, that's a great question, and. Uh, just to link it to your prior question, one of the things that has changed is that more and more medical schools um, are asking me to talk to them. About, oh, that's fabulous! Yeah, it's 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 really quite a wonderful outcome, uh, and I get to talk about the books and the research that I've done with medical mm-hmm. audiences. And so, uh, in brief, to answer your question, I would say to an incoming medical class, you have to study two things um, deeply: um, the public health view of medicine requires you to unpack what it means when the CDC's Rachel Walensky said that racism is a public health crisis. You have to study and unpack what that means. And then number two, you have to study and unpack your role in dismantling that racism if you would call yourself a healer, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to do those two things. So on the first issue, racism is a public health crisis because racism characterizes what we call the social determinants of health. Now, by that, I mean all of those things that I talked about my parents experiencing, how much you paid, Mm -hmm. how decent your housing is, how many pollutants there are in your environment, Mm -hmm. what the hazard of arrest and violence is in your community, the quality of the food that you have access to. Since that is so racialized in this country, Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Racism characterizes where we live because segregation is our history and our current crisis. Racism characterizes where you go to school. My parents remember had to work five jobs to make sure I did not go to PS 123 in my neighborhood because the students who went there didn't become the dean of GW Law School. You had to go to a school outside of my neighborhood, not where Black and Latino, mostly Black, Puerto Rican, and D- Dominican families in my neighborhood mm-hmm. went. Right. So since segregation characterizes where we go to school, since there is a twenty three billion dollar funding gap between white school districts and black and Latino school districts in the United States, racism characterizes what makes people healthy. Medical students have to understand this because even if they treat let's pick a a really common disease in the South Bronx where I live, asthma alley, asthma Mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. When I go to the doctor, if you treat me, medical student, dear medical student, if you treat me for asthma with every medication that you have, you can give me steroids, inhalers, albuterol, but send me back to a moldy, pest-infested apartment, your albuterol does me no good. Right, right. right. So then your second responsibility, medical students, is to understand your role in dismantling that racism if you would heal that asthma, right? Right. I would suggest that medical education no longer has the luxury of suggesting that by operating at the tip of the iceberg, right? Or what Kamara Jones calls the bottom of the cliff, where all you do as a medical provider is worry about the disease in front of you, right? Not the social context from where a person comes, Mm -hmm. not whether they have decent housing, whether they have heat on, whether there's somebody in their family who's criminal justice system, thereby impairing their mental health and their capacity to care for themselves. You have to, medical student, be involved in understanding the racism that characterizes their lives 
and how it affects their health. And then number two, how you as a healthcare provider must interact with that racism in order to heal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to make certain that our listeners have a clear understanding of what this looks like on the ground. And you're doing a fabulous job kind of outlining kind of the the pieces and and the parts. And I wonder if individuals have reached out to you with their stories. And I wonder if there's a story you might be able to share with us that along with the story of your parents, which is very poignant and and one that I so (laughs) relate to um, on so many different levels. And I didn't know you were a New Yorker too. Okay. Are something you in New York? Yeah, something else oh, we got to yeah. talk about. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, but I was going to say, yeah, just to make it as real as possible for individuals who are trying to perhaps understand what does this look like? What does this look like on the ground for folks who are trying to get treatment themselves or for family members, children? you know, whomever. There is a famous law case. Um, It's called Simpkins versus Moses H. Cohn Hospital. Okay. And one of the plaintiffs in that case was George Simpkins, um, a medical doctor that I'll use as a story to answer your question because it gives you an example of the range of things that on the ground an individual can do to really operationalize these these things I'm asking the medical profession to consider. Okay. So uh, Dr. Simpkins realized that patient after patient after patient in the African-American community could not get into the hospitals uh, in Greensboro and surrounds because of the color of their skin. So he had patients that couldn't uh, get in uh, to make emergency deliveries, um, who had to travel miles or even stories of patients delivering in parking lots because of segregation in hospitals. His patients were receiving inferior care. So very much like the doctor who triggered the revelation that Flint, Michigan's water was making Mm -hmm, people mm -hmm, sick. mm -hmm. Mona, um, Dr. Mona, Uh, this doctor did the first thing that all medical professionals can do. They can screen for the social determinants that are harming their patient's health, right? Dr. Mona realized that her pediatric population had elevated lead blood levels above what the general population did. George Simpkins realized his patients were dying because they weren't getting treated because of the color of their skin. They can screen and figure out what the social context, not just the medical context. So you have a history and physical that doesn't just include, tell me about your heart disease in your family history. Tell me what you ate this morning. Tell me your weight, tell me your height. But it also includes, in the last two weeks, did you have food insecurity? It also includes a question about whether you are living in a housing situation that is healthy or unhealthy. It also includes a mental health. So even just screening your patient population, secondly, collecting that data, stratifying it and reviewing it for racial and social context. Mm -hmm. That's what George Simpkins did. And that's what Mona Hannah Atish did when they realized there were isolated cases, but there was a pattern. How do you see those patterns? The health industry 
should be collecting and reviewing data stratified by race. That's very important. Stratified by ethnicity. After you review that data, when you see that there are patterns like Mona, uh, Dr. Mona saw, you then have to think, who do I partner with, right? So some of the best stories, George Simpkins, Mona, uh, uh, Dr. Mona, some of the best stories of success are where health providers partnered with either housing providers, United Health in Wisconsin, with interventions for violence, gang violence, One of my favorites is a partnership by a federally qualified health clinic that knew that just treating diabetes in a vacuum would not help their largely Cape Verdean population if they didn't also treat their food and diet and nutrition deficiencies. And so what did they do? They floated a social impact bond, purchased a piece of property, and then partnered with a Cape Verdean grocer to co-locate the grocery store and the clinic on the same grounds. So you and I go in as patients with diabetes, we get our A1C checked, but we also get a prescription for the food that will help us to improve and control that. But even more than that, there's a test kitchen linking the grocery store with the clinic in Brockton, Massachusetts. So during my visit about my life diabetes, I have a cooking class and they are teaching me how to treat, not just with medication, but with nutrition. I take that cooking class. I see how culturally relevant recipes could make right. me, my family healthy. I take the prescription from the doctor. I go next door to the Cape Verdean grocery store and my health is improved, not just because I saw the doctor, but because my lifestyle has been changed. Yeah. Yes, right? I love that. Mm-hmm. So these are the kinds of ideas you can keep on down the continuum after you think about partnership, hospitals uh, partnering with affordable housing providers, hospital partners or emergency room partners for gang intervention, diverting kids who have been shot on the street from jail to mental health treatment or Mm -hmm. substance use treatment. Those partnerships are key and important. This is how it would look on the ground to understand that health is a byproduct of justice. But Dr. Sims went, Simpkins went even further. And this is instructive for those who are courageous enough. Believe me, if you intervene and screen, if you intervene and collect and report data, if you intervene and partner, as I've described, that's a huge step. But Dr. Simpkins is a model because he went further. He went further as an advocate. He sued Moses H. Cohen Hospital. And as a result of that watershed case, 7,100 hospitals were desegregated. We got the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because Dr. Simpkins, another physician and two dentists along with their patients sued to desegregate hospitals. They marched on Washington as part of the Medical Committee for Civil Rights, later human rights, in order to advocate for civil rights and justice. And I contend that in order for health to be a justice a byproduct of justice. Some doctors, some medical students have to do that as well. Got they it. get involved with the law. It's all love. It's all love. You 
You're listening to the January 2023 edition of Black Talk on KGNU FM 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver. My guest today is Dana Bowen Matthew, currently Dean of the George Washington Law School. I'd like to take a quick pause here to revisit a conversation I had a few months ago with Linda Villarosa. Linda Villarosa is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. The book focuses on how racism creates health disparities across the United States. And she points to racism as being the cause of those disparities. I think that my story is a lot of people's story. And it started at Essence when I was the health editor of Essence. And I really believed that individuals were solely responsible for their health outcomes and for the health outcomes, the poor health outcomes of African-Americans, which we have always had, starting with infant mortality, including maternal um, mortality and morbidity, which means a near death of someone, all the way to lowered life expectancy. So I thought if we as black women individuals just do better, then the whole community will be better. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, you know, that was like 25 years ago, I have learned that that is not the only reason that we suffer from poor health outcomes. And I think the turning point for me was in 2017 when I was writing a New York Times Magazine cover story on maternal mortality looking at why America's black mothers and babies are in a life or death crisis. The statistic that got to me was, why is America the only country where the number of women who die or almost die in childbirth or pregnancy is going up? Mm -hmm. Why are black women at least three to four times more likely to suffer a death or near death due to pregnancy and childbirth? And then why is a black woman with a master's degree or more more likely to die or almost die and and lose her baby than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So that told me what I used to think about, oh, if individuals just do better, we'll be better, isn't right. Right. And something else is going on. You know, one aspect of your book, Under the Skin, that will always remain with me is your brilliant storytelling. Because what you do is you couch stories, real life people, their experiences, along with the statistical disparities, the disparities in care between black people and their white counterparts. But what you also do is you kind of really kind of pull back the curtain on this whole idea that kind of racism is present in all aspects of healthcare. I, Linda, currently have a stepson who's in med school and I would say he's still beginning his training, his medical training, just given the length, the duration of med school. It seems like you're just always beginning um, because it takes such a long time. And he's already been made aware of, and this is a phrase you use in chapter two of your book, Under the Skin, the dangerous myth that Black bodies are different. And I wonder if you might be willing to share or talk about some of those myths with our listeners. One of the myths that was the scariest for me is the idea that Black people have really high pain tolerance, yeah. that we can tolerate levels of pain unimaginable to people of other colors, especially white people. This myth is grounded in slavery, and it was used by, start, started by doctors and scientists, many of whom owned slaves, enslaved people, 
to justify enslavement and all the cruelties that went with it. But then fast forward to 2016 is the study that I like to cite is it looked at 222 white medical um, students and residents and interns. And that study showed that it, 40% of them believed one myth, including the myth that we have extremely high pain tolerance. So why is something that was grounded in slavery still present in the minds of some physicians now? The other one that really stuck with me was the idea that black people have lowered lung function in our weak lungs. And that was started to justify enslavement to say, oh, if people are exercising by doing free labor, then they're building their bodies and building that lung function. Ridiculous as it sounds, mm -hmm. it may have originated with Thomas Jefferson, but it was really grounded in medical education and training by this Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who was a physician who used, who invented a machine called a spirometer, which measured lung function. In that spirometer was encoded in it was the idea and the, you know, sort of the calibration that black people have lowered lung function, something like 10 to 15% lower. Mm -hmm. The current spirometer, many of them, not every single one, but many of them still calibrate that. And I asked a doctor recently, how do you do it? How does it, how, if you have a black patient walk in and you have to right. measure lung function. Mm -hmm. And she said, there's a switch on the side of the machine and you switch it to the black reading that um, measures lower lung function. I thought about this, like I grew up in Denver, the mile high city. I ran track and played soccer um, in the mile high city and in Boulder. I have good lungs still. I exercise. So why, when I walk into a doctor's office with my black self, is there going to be a little switch that says I have lower lung function? That does not look at me as an individual. It looks at me as a race. And that is bad medicine. Well, you know, I've got to tell you, you are the second person in my life who has used the term weathering. My stepdaughter is in public health. That's her area. And we were chatting one day about something so completely unrelated. But anyway, she tossed that term in to the conversation. And I said, what is that? I don't, I don't know what that is. Would you mind speaking to that? Because I'm guessing I'm not the only person perhaps who's just come upon that, that particular word and or listeners who's never come upon it. So do you mind saying something about that, Linda? Weathering, really understanding that concept really helped me. It mm -hmm. opened the door for me because it explained why the lived experience of being a black person or any marginalized, a person from a marginalized group would be dangerous to your body, to your actual health. And that, that phrase was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who's writing a book of her own. And um, it speaks to the idea that something about being black is bad for your body. And it's not limited to black people, but we've been suffering from the effects of discrimination the longest. Mm -hmm. So if something happens to you that is what we call a microaggression, it could be some, you walk into a restaurant and they put you directly into the back or they ignore, or you, or you're ignored. You're in an elevator and somebody clutches their purse and moves away. Exactly. From you. And students at CU are well aware of microaggressions. Well aware of that. <laughs> uh -huh. You walk into a room and you, uh, everyone thinks you're not that bright. Mm -hmm. All those things, or it's a macroaggression, which means you're discriminated by the police in housing or at your job, which mm -hmm. is, you know, really um, terrible. So when those things happen, your body changes, the functions of your body change and um, your heart rate goes up. 
your blood pressure rises and your cortisol levels, stress hormones increase, which is all good. It makes, it's like the fight or flight syndrome. However, when it happens too much, if it's triggered over and over again, it causes a kind of premature aging to the body, which is called weathering. And that weathering comes from the word is because Dr. Geronimus is a scientist and a poet. And it speaks to the idea that when a house, it gets weathered by the storm, it knocks off the shingles, it chips the paint, it breaks the windows. In a dual way, we're still here. We're weathering this storm. It's hurting us, but we're weathering it. We're still here, just the way that house is still standing. That was Linda Villarosa, author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. I'd like to bring us back to our conversation with Dean Matthew. Dean Matthew brings a vast pool of knowledge as both an attorney and public health expert. She brings both of these areas of expertise to bear as we examine the social and racial conditions that contribute to persistent health inequities among Black women and have, one could very, very convincingly argue, and have been in place since 1619. So on 21 January, at the Sister to Sister film screening and conversation that will follow, there will mostly be Black women in attendance. What are you planning to share? I have to be selfish. It'll be so good to be back in community with those women. (laughs) Sister to Sister is, like I said, so much started in Colorado. Right, Um, right. Sister to Sister is a community, um, and I'm going to get way off track. You're going to have to interrupt me in a moment. But Sister Sister to Sister is a community of women that feed each other's souls um, and intellects and social consciousness. But there is data that says just being in the company of these women will improve each of our mental health. And so I'm going to get that out of it. But also, I want... And Matthew, may I add... um, the food is not bad either. Oh, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about it, sister. To sister. <laughs> I just had to throw that in. Oh, it's definitely. Telling and you. you know, sisters yes. and sisters leader, if you'll allow me one more di- uh, 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 diversion, uh, is led by a woman, um, Velveeta Golightly Howell. And I have to give a shout out to Velveeta Howell because she is the reason I got to work at the EPA and got the education that I got on environmental justice and its connection to the public health. So all of those things, the food, the community, uh, the intellectual stimulation, I have to add that much of my consciousness and the part of my career that focuses on environmental justice, I owe in no small part to Velveeta and sister to sister. So what well, will I- I'm glad you I'm glad you gave that shout out because Vel has been Velveeta has okay. been on the show and because uh, I couldn't do it without her. And uh, she continues on yes, you know, lifting up all of us. And she's always there, can always be depended upon. And she's, you know, she's doing she's it. Remarkable. She's, she's doing remarkable. She's doing the work. And the thing I love work. about her is that she brings other people with her. Oh, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. It is, it is It is a hallmark of her 
Well, that's why you and I are having this conversation. Exactly. Yes. It's due to her, not just because Sister to Sister invited you, but because Velveeta reached out to me. So absolutely. No, I'm glad. I'm glad we're lifting her up today because she deserves all the laurels. She really does. And no, thank you. No, but thank you for doing that and and saying that. And uh, we need to pause. And uh, as I said, acknowledge all of her gifts and talents. Exactly. The ways in which she supports each and every one of us. Exactly true. Exactly true. Um, So when I think of George Simpkins and I think of that landmark case that I talked about, I think about those people who marched. One of the reasons I love being in Washington is because I have a sense of empowerment. Mm Mm-hmm for change that I'm going to, I guess, share and rekindle, I hope, in my conversations with the Sister to Sister group on January 21st. Mm -hmm. I do believe that if we want our nation and our society to live up to the creed that it aspires to it will take black women to make it happen Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i am going to tell you that i've never been more inspired by a speaker um than the author of the 1619 project you Ah, are okay okay who and one of the things that she said was that democracy is a project that black people have been trying to get america to live up to since we arrived This country, may I say, is as good and as true to its word as we the citizens make it be, and Black women are the citizens that are the heart of our hope to live up to who we say we are. I don't believe that the change we need uh, will happen without us. I don't believe that the values we aspire and ascribe as our own will be lived out without black women. For some reason, just like we are the hearts of our family, we are the heart of this country and the hope for this country. And so I'll be asking us to realize our power, um, to value ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to celebrate ourselves and to recommit ourselves. Right. And just for our listeners, I just wanted to kind of set the table um, for a lot of what you're going to be talking about and bringing with you and have discussed for folks to understand that when we talk about the healthcare system and more specifically, when we talk about kind of it intersecting with the lives of, of Black women, the experiences of Black women in healthcare, we are talking about, and will be on, on January 21st, we'll be talking about Black maternal health. And Black maternal health seems to be having what I would call a moment, a moment in the sense that there are more conversations, more articles, people are, are, are talking about it, at least acknowledging it. And, and I want to make certain our, our listeners understand that at this point, um, some of you may know that Black women are three to four times more likely to die from complications surrounding pregnancy and childbirth than white women. And this is regardless of education or socioeconomic factors. I think this is correct. And and Dean Matthew, please correct me if I'm wrong, that infants of college educated black women experience, I wanna say kind of three times more deaths per thousand live births 
than infants of white women with high school degrees or less. Yeah. So again, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an issue. It's, oh, it's, it's not just, not an issue. It's, a, it's a race issue. It's a life and death race issue. And, um, it's, and it's a crisis, you know, and it's a crisis, it's a crisis. that we have yeah. so overlooked. I wonder if, again, as we kind of look at what's happening in the United States, because we are the only industrialized nation where black maternal health is getting worse. It's getting worse. And, and the data and, you cite is, is worse this year than it was last year. The gap right. is widening. Yeah. And so just, you know, with the information and all of the kind of wisdom you have shared with us today, I mean, how do we continue and what do we do essentially? How do we continue on with our education regarding, again, the alarming disparities in healthcare? So I know our listeners and I know many are, are sitting out there wondering, well, what, what do we continue to think about? What do we continue to kind of beyond thinking about and educating ourselves? What can, what can we do? There's so many levels on which we could intervene. Um, we are responsible for advocating and de-demanding change. We're responsible for demanding reform in our healthcare system. Uh, we're responsible for demanding reform in our medical education system. We're responsible for demanding reform in all of the areas in which racism affects maternal health outcomes, as well as all health outcomes that you've described some data as. So a little bit of <clears throat> background by way of the data that you cited. You were talking about infant mortality um, and the Colorado data is particularly damning, right? In Colorado, now this is, this is data I looked at the last time I was in Colorado. So if it's gotten better, I'd be surprised, but I'm gonna cite it nonetheless. A black woman in Colorado is two and a half times more likely to lose her child in the first year of life if she has a college education and an income between 50 and $75,000. And that is two and a half times more likely than a white woman in Colorado who has not a high school, but an eighth grade education and lives below the poverty line, right? So one of the things that we can think about is being very clear about the fact that this is not a socioeconomic problem. Right. This is not an education problem. This is a problem with race. Right. Absolutely. This is a problem with racism, right? So one of the things we can demand is that people stop describing this problem as though we can avoid the fact that it's not the color of our skin or our descendants or ancestry. It is the social context in which we receive medical care the way I'm treated, the way I'm credited or not credited when I walk into a healthcare environment. My access to treatment because of the color of my skin, the assumptions and perceptions that providers have, as you said in the opening, Michelle, one of the data points in my book is many, many interviews where women said, especially Black women, but Latino women as well, I went to the doctor, I told them I was in pain and they didn't believe me. They sent me right. home. Right. Or I went to the doctor and I said, think about Serena Williams, right? All the money in the world, fame, fortune, and still she can't get someone to believe that she's susceptible to preeclampsia. Right. Right. I'm not able to deliver in a healthy environment where my baby and I are respected, expected to be healthy, treated as though we are human beings. 
right? And given the kind of care that would yield good maternal health outcomes, that is our responsibility to demand change for. And that's going to happen as we equip ourselves with knowledge, as we make our voices heard, as we find intervention points that are suitable for each of us. And each of us doesn't have to necessarily march. I march, I litigate, I'm out talking. But there are people who as a mom in a public school looks around and sees that her little girls are being disproportionately suspended and excluded from school when compared to white little girls, right? And speaking out to change that discipline difference will ultimately change health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Speaking out, if you are a provider of employment and looking at the disparities in income of promotion, um, that'll change health outcomes, right? If my father was paid a living wage, he wouldn't have had to work five jobs between right. me and my, and my, and my mom, right? Mm -hmm. My children might still have their grandparents. Exactly. As many of my white colleagues do. Yeah. You know, Dean Matthew, what's going on in the law schools? What's going on at GW? So, you know, we we're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking about healthcare providers and we're talking about education and some of the changes that need to occur within me medical education, but also just in terms of outlook, <laughs> um, perception, um, looking at issues to do with implicit bias and, and all of that. What's going on in law schools or maybe yours in particular when it comes to preparing um, attorneys to deal with some of these issues? In, in, terms of, in terms of courses, in terms of, um, you know, speakers coming in and kind of perhaps influencing the thinking of, of law students. What, yeah, what's going on within the legal profession around this and, and preparing people to take this on? Because as you said, I mean, this intersection between kind of medicine and, and the law and, and having to fight this on, on several fronts you know, law being a big front. How, how are things going there? How, are, how is this being received or being discussed? I'm really glad you asked. I will uh, tell you that uh, one of the things that's going on here at the George Washington University that I'm pretty proud of is that we are forming something called the Equity Institute. It's an institute dedicated to the biggest change in academy in the academy I see as necessary to deal with these problems we've been talking about. And that is to unite law with every other discipline across the university. Hmm. So if there are researchers in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology and Philosophy and Medicine and Public Health and Nursing who are working on disparities, who are working on inequality, which I contend is the quintessential, I mean, it is the existential threat of our time, inequality, specifically racial inequality. If those researchers are working in those departments, they're gonna come up with new knowledge and new solutions right. that law could help them turn into policy on the ground. And so we are in the Equity Institute, bringing together researchers across the campus who are looking from different angles using different lenses at how to educate students, 
as civil servants how to produce new research and knowledge that is aimed at eradicating racism and taking that new knowledge into legislative chambers, mm -hmm. into courtrooms, into city councils, mm -hmm. into school boards, so that we can actually make sure the change doesn't stop at the academy. But we train, I hope, a veritable army of people who are thinking now in an interdisciplinary way, mm -hmm. who are thinking about how what they do connects to the social justice needs of the community around them, connects to actually changing behavior, laws, policies on the ground. And so this Equity Institute, I have to say, got it started Colorado. The Colorado Health Equity Project was the first. Did it really? Yeah, mm -hmm. Colorado mm -hmm. Health Equity Project. We were a, and I will say some of those are still going. Um, we were an incubator, if you will, for medical mm -hmm. legal partnerships. That is a partnership, this interdisciplinarity, a partnership between law students and medical students going into qualified, federally qualified health clinics in order to remove the legal barriers. Remember my asthma example, to remove yes. the legal barriers to good health. We started three of those. And I think now when I think about the Tillman Farley Center on Anschutz Medical Campus, I think one of those is still going at the Department of Pediatrics, right? So those combinations started in Colorado. And then when I went to the University of Virginia, we did it again with the law school, the medical school, okay. some of the leaders in the, in the Department of Music and the School of Agriculture, I mean, excuse me, architecture, joined forces to say space, the way we construct our public spaces. Now, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia is famous for that terrible thing. They call it the Unite the Right rally. Yes, yes. Unite yes, the yes. Right race massacre, right? Mm -hmm. But the statues of Confederate generals came down in Charlottesville. This is a public health as well as social justice victory, right? Absolutely. That people do not walk into spaces that mm -hmm. are in, I mean, just incessantly communicating your inferiority mm -hmm. and white superiority that has been dismantled. So seeing those combinations come out of the higher education, the halls of higher education is one of the most important developments that I'm seeing across the country, really, mm -hmm. and here at George Washington University as well. Now, that is fabulous. My gosh, you make me want to go back to law school. I got to tell you, it's where the action is. But maybe not. Once was enough. Um, <laughs> I can understand. I can definitely once, understand. Once, once was more than enough. So, Dean Matthew, it has been wonderful to have a chance to, to speak with you today. And I cannot wait because I'm going to be in that audience on the 21st of January. I cannot wait to learn more and to hear more of what you have to say. And I want to also remind our listeners, if you would like to learn more from Dr. Dana Bowen Matthew, you can pick up one or both of her books and we'll post all of that information, titles, et cetera, on our website. And remember that you can attend the Sister to Sister film screening of Aftershock and the discussion that will follow that will be featuring Dr. Dana Bowen Matthew, which again is scheduled for Saturday. 21 January from 5.30 to 8.30 at the Zion Senior Center in Denver. And as I said, the address, all the details, all the particulars will be posted on the KGNU website. 
And again, I cannot thank you enough. We are so excited to have you here, have you back with us. I don't know. I don't know, GW. It's going to be coming home. Oh, Michelle, I've been so honored to be on your program and have the privilege of speaking to you and your listeners. Thank you so much for your interest. Thank you so much for the exciting and vibrant conversation. You really pushed me. You started by saying, can I put you on the spot? I said, oh, boy. And it had it had an impact on me to be able to talk with you in this depth um, on these subjects. So I thank you for having me very much. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I know.